You see, we're on a mission from God. the podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Qureshi, also known as Q. And today's guest is somebody that I am very excited to talk to because I haven't really talked to her in a long, long time. Uh, But she remains one of my favorite people online and off. Her name is Maharat Rory Picker-Niece. Hi, Rory. Hi, Amanda. How's it going? Good. I'm excited to be reconnecting with you. I know. We haven't talked. Well, when was the last time I saw? It's been my God, <laughs> forever. Like we met. So actually, you know, we met at the same place that I met Reverend Keat, Jim Keat, who was also mm-hmm. on the podcast, and that was like maybe ten years ago uh, in New York at that retreat. It was the um, I don't know some faith leader retreat for. Yeah, it was the it was like 2030. That was like, what did we want the world to look like in 2030? That's right. Which at the time was further away than it is right now. (laughs) Oh, we were young and idealistic fools. (laughs) We didn't know what was going to happen in between. (laughs) We were so foolish, so optimistic and foolish. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and also that whole sort of situation. I mean, basically, it was a foundation. And they like, I, I mean, this is what it, I guess this is what it is to have gazillions of dollars. You can just like, you can just have these random ass events where you just like, oh, these people look interesting. Let's invite them all and put them up for a few days and let them, you know, hang out together and whatever. I don't know. Like, I don't know what actually came out of any of that. Well, this came out of it. This conversation right now, that's, that's what we've all been building to. Yeah. Yeah. I- <laughs> Yes. Oh my God. It's so good to have something in my life come to fruition. (laughs) Okay. So um, we're going to start the podcast with some icebreaker questions. Can you dig it? I'm a little scared. Do I have to like be an ice cream or something? No, 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 no. These are just to get you warmed up. And also so that people who are listening who have never heard of you before, which I can't even imagine that. But if anyone has never heard of you before, they get a sort of a, uh, you know, sense of your personality and, you know, just get a feel for you before we really dive in. Okay. 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 All right. So the first question is, what is the last thing you watched on television? I've been watching this show on that's through Hulu, but it's a lifetime show called Mary Kills People. What? I'm really kind of into it. It's about um, a doctor who does assisted suicide. Oh, is it? Uh, is it real or is it like fiction? No, no, okay. it's fiction. But she's like, she's like trying to comfort people in these times where they're they're really sick. Yeah, and she really believes in what she's doing. But then, like, the police are on her tail. I, it's I've gotten really into it. That sounds really interesting. That sounds really interesting. I'm kind of on the fence about uh, what do you what what is it called? It's called uh, what's the name of it? Like when you assist somebody suicide. I I think it's called assisted suicide. Oh no, I thought I thought there was like an actual name for it. Like a God, I don't know. All right, well, whatever. We'll figure that out later. The point is, uh, there are. Like I've heard people talk about this for a long time and I don't, I don't, I mean, I think there's a case to be made, right? You know, it's, I think it's so hard and like, thank God I don't, I'm not in that situation. So I don't, I don't know what's going through somebody's mind. Um, I I do have a little bit of guilt in watching the show because I'm, I'm sure this is really controversial and I'm just, you know, getting mild amounts of entertainment out of it at the end of a long day um so now all your audience is judging me for that because um but you know it just I don't know and I think the show like it really it's sort of I mean it's it's ultimately kind of you know a drama and, and it's like the police chase you know and all that type of stuff but um but I think it does really raise these questions of you know because she's like there's these people who are really just begging i mean they're they're at end of life and they just want control over how they get to die and right. they don't want to you know have all this suffering and and um 
but there's all these laws against it. So yeah. I, I think it really does raise some questions about like, what, what are the choices that we have over our own lives? Yeah, no, I, that's exactly what I think is so fascinating about it. And just the idea of, you know, there are so many factors that go into the decision, right? Like if you are a person who doesn't have a lot of money or insurance and yet you're going to require hospitalization, right? Or, you know, you, you set in advance, you know, if you're in a coma or something for a certain amount of time, do you really want your family burdened with that? And is it, is that your choice? Can you make that choice? It's called, it's called euthanasia. That's what I was trying oh, to remember. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a bigger word. Yeah. 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 That's what I, 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 but I remember this because, you know, I think it was when I was a teenager when Dr. Kevorkian was a, was in the news. Mm-hmm. Remember all of that? And uh, yeah. it was a big debate when I was much, much younger. And I thought about it then. And now as I get older, I don't want to be too morbid here, but you know, I think a lot about this kind of stuff. Well, no. And I feel like, right. Like Dr. Kevorkian was sort of synonymous with like evil, you know, yeah, it was, right. and, and exactly now it's, I mean, this gets into a whole bunch of theological, right? Who has who has ownership over our bodies? Do we get to take life and death into our own hands? I mean, this is this is some intense stuff. Yeah, but it's also like a really good way to unwind, apparently. You know, I, look, I'm hooked. It's all I can tell you. I don't know. This is recommended, and I tried it, and I can't stop now. It's called Mary Kills People. Yeah, it's called. Her name is Mary, and uh-huh. that's and also you'd think that it wasn't a great name of a show, but it yeah. like it works. Yeah, you know, it's literally it's like her name is Mary, and she kills people, and they were like, <laughs> let's call it Mary Kills People. But I don't know, it works. It works. Okay, and you said it's on Hulu. It's on Hulu. It's a Lifetime show, but I've been watching it on Hulu. All right, all right. Well, that's cool. I mean, I do think that's really interesting. Actually, I like I like shows that make you slightly uncomfortable. Um, yeah, I mean, you're slightly uncomfortable also while you're like, because that's the other thing, then you're also like, are you sort of rooting for the police to catch? I mean, there's all the levels. And then, you know, there's like the like, love drama between her and the cop. I mean, it's layers, right? Like, it's, right. A, it's layers upon layers. Wow. I don't want you to think that I just watch superficial television. This is like, <laughs> <laughs> I would never think that. <laughs> okay. All right. The second icebreaker question is, um, what is the last book that you read? I just finished reading. Um, oh, and now the, the author's name is escaping me. I want to say her name's like Lori Frankel or something. She wrote a book called One, Two, Three. Hmm. Um, but I actually really love this author because she wrote a book called This Is How It Always Is, uh, which I fell in love with and I'm kind of obsessed with. And it's my go-to recommendation for anyone who says that they need um, a fiction book. But then this is another book that she wrote. And I wasn't going to read it because I thought, you know, sometimes you love an author and you just like, you have to go out on top with them. Yeah. And you don't know if they can do it again. Uh-huh. But, um, but I really like this one also. I still like This Is How It Always Is better. But uh, this is called One, Two, Three. And it's kind of the story of triplets. And so they call, they sort of call themselves One, Two, and Three. And each chapter cycles between them as narrators so it goes one two three one two three one two three wow Um, but but also you know is is them like living in this small town that's that's kind of um I don't want to ruin it you know but it's it's like it's also like they're they're how old are they they're maybe 16 you know so it's like a coming of age it's a small town that's dying it's them and their mom it's all these struggles there's a little bit of mystery it was really good Huh. It sounds amazing. I don't read enough fiction. I, I hate to say it. I mostly read fiction because it's how I escape. The rest of the world is like the real world is scary. Uh-huh. That's true. That is true. I actually totally agree with that. Um, but when I want to escape, I, I do something far less cerebral than read. <laughs> so good for you for for using your brain. Uh, okay. And then the last question is, what did you have for breakfast today? I didn't have breakfast today. <gasps> You're the first guest who said that. And I've been doing this for like almost a year now. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Why? Rory, do I need to use my mom voice? <laughs> <laughs> 
No, no, I, yeah, no particular reason. Just, just, um, was, was kind of running behind. I did. Well, I will, you know, I'll brag instead. I've been trying to run. Um, I just find like, it's like, I have a better day if I exercise in the morning and I kind of overslept and I really didn't want to. And it was so hot and it was so humid. And I told myself, you know what, just, just go and move even a little bit. And I did. And then I pushed myself and then I was running super late this morning, but I did, but I ran. So yeah. did I get credit for that instead? And you didn't eat? Did you have lunch at least? Um, yeah, no, I've been, I'm good. I'm okay. Good. All right, man. Like I, I worry, like people should be eating. You should be eating. I'm yeah, just saying no. no guilt. I'm just saying you should eat. No guilt. You're, there was guilt. There was guilt. <laughs> I can't help it. I can't help Even it. If I knew these were the questions, I would have watched a better show last night. <laughs> and eaten better breakfast this morning. It's cool. It's cool. I would have watched a documentary about the history of chess. Oh, yes. Yes. No, I, I like your answers. I like your answers. Um, and I'm also impressed that you didn't eat breakfast and also ran because like that's hardcore, man. I drank a lot. I've been drinking a lot of water today. Oh, that's good. That's good. Do you do, you do coffee? I don't. I do. I'm a social coffee drinker. Oh. Okay, nice. I'm an addict, so, you know. <laughs> okay, so now that we're done with icebreakers, let's talk. And the first thing we're going to talk about is um, your title, because I do not know that many people understand what Maharat is. So can you tell us, Ms. Rory Picker niece, what is what is what is your title mean? What is Maharat? It is the it is probably the most common question I get. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, luckily, we have a really long time, right? Because it's a. Um, so basically, I am um, part of a cohort of Orthodox Jewish women who um, studied and were ordained. Yeah. Um, but the Orthodox community is the, the one community in Judaism that, uh, some might say still, or for a while did not, um, still ordain women. And so when there was, and there had been women, there had been individual women who would study with individual rabbis who then gave them what we call smicha, which essentially kind of translates into ordination, yeah. um, which is like a more Christian term, but we'll, we'll use that for, for the sake of, of conversation. Um, and, um, but they were kind of rejected, right? Cause the community was just, you know, women are not rabbis. And so in, I think it was 2009, uh, a rabbi named Avi Weiss decided to uh, give smicha, to give ordination to uh, Sarah Hurwitz. And he decided to just make up a whole new title. And he made up the title Maharat, which is an acronym in Hebrew that stands for Madricha Hilchatit Ruchanit Toratit, which wow. translates to a leader or a guide of uh, Jewish law of spirituality and of Torah, of sacred text. So basically kind of like what a rabbi is and does. But I think in some ways I joke about it that, you know, no one could be upset and say, we don't do that because he made it up and it had never been done before. Um, Right. You can't say women can't be maharats because like women had never, no one had been a maharat. So, um, so that was, that was the title that she used and they started a school to then train other women for the same path, um, which is, which is how I got onto that path. And and I joined in and in the first group of us, uh, I'll use the title of Maharat, but over time, actually, some of the women started to take different titles. They just felt like Maharat was really confusing. It wasn't as well known. Uh, so some of the women, uh, Sarah Hurwitz actually changed her title to Rabbah. A number of women followed in her footsteps and used Rabbah. Uh, some use Rabbanit, so kind of feminine forms of Rabbi. Some just use Rabbi, saying it just means my teacher, yeah. uh, and it's not really a masculine or feminine form. And, um, and I just kept Maharat because I graduated. I took the title Maharat. I moved to St. Louis and took a job and have been kind of in the same place ever since. And so I, I've gotten to know a lot of people with the title. And, um, so yeah, I'm actually one of only a few women still who's using that title, though there's a whole group of us that have been trained in the institution and do this work, but we all call ourselves different things now. Wow. All right. Well, uh, that is 
That is incredible. It's also, um, I don't know. There's this weird tension there in being being somebody who is orthodox and also <laughs> completely breaking ground on something, uh, you know, related to this tradition. So I, I guess, I mean, what what was the response? What has been the response? The Orthodox community, at least uh, here, is not not particularly large, is it, in America? Um, so I think we, I don't know the total numbers. I think it's estimated that the Orthodox community is about 10% of the Jewish community, and the Jewish community is like 2% of the American population. So yeah. Um, we're, we're pretty small in terms of America, although being small doesn't mean we don't still have our own subgroups. So, you know, there's modern Orthodox, there's like liberal modern Orthodox, there's, you know, more right wing Orthodox, um, you know, and then also kind of internal terminology. So I would say the response has really been all across the, the spectrum. You know, definitely there's people who just would not even really come in contact with any of us that are just in institutions that like, wouldn't even really be talking about it and probably just don't even know we exist. Um, but overall, I would say there's a lot of people who were just, you know, it was interesting because because th there was a lot of debate about it in the abstract, but I found that as people would get to meet us or as, as people who I knew learned that I was doing it, there was this response of, oh, that makes sense. Uh -huh. You know, just like kind of night, right? Where I think it, it, people thought of it as like people who were, I don't know, chaining themselves to synagogues and trying to, you know, break down walls. And then they realized a lot of it were just those of us who were just really, really passionate about the community who felt like we had gifts to give and contributions to make. And this was the way that we could do it. And yeah. why should we not be able to do that just for being women? And for many of us, I think myself included, we're actually incredibly traditional other than this way. You know, sometimes people will come to ask me a question um, and my husband will, will sometimes stop them. He'll say, if you're asking her a question because you think she's just going to give you the easy answer, don't uh -huh. because she's not going to give you the easy answer. Like, don't think that just because like I've, I've broken ground, but there's this almost irony that you know, like I have to, I'm more progressive only because I'm a woman who does it, not because I'm actually necessarily progressive. Although then I feel like along the way, I've also become pretty progressive. So I don't know, you know, we're, it, it's been a really fascinating journey, but for the most part, I would say people have been really welcoming and grateful. And a lot of people who just felt like, like I've been waiting for you to come. Like I've been waiting for a person I could talk to about this, or I've been waiting for, you know, you who can understand this tradition from my perspective, or you who just bring this different lens. Wow. Um, and, and that's been overwhelmingly. And I think there's definitely some pushback, but for the most part, you know, those people are, they're, they're doing their thing and I'm doing my thing and we just try to stay out of each other's way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's very impressive, actually. I, I actually really love this about you um, because you are just, I don't know, you, you definitely defy expectations, right? You're, you're very, very smart. You're an intellectual, you're, um, you're a leader, you're spiritual, but you also are, um, you're also really dedicated to this very beautiful tradition and you aren't willing to give up on, on that completely. And, you know, I mean, it could, it would probably have been easier to just go off and, you know, become a reform rabbi or any other, you know, any other thing, but you chose to do this. And I think that is fascinating. And I think it says something very specific about you, um, that you wanted to do it on your terms without sacrificing the things that were really important to you. You know, I, I appreciate that. And I, I see a lot of that in you also, right? I mean, I think of like, like we get to define, you know, nobody gets to say, whatever we define ourselves as don't do X or Y because we are, you know, so I, I would have to imagine that you probably get that from people who would say Muslim women shouldn't be doing whatever it is. And it's like, but here you like, you just did it. So you can't say that anymore. Yes. As my mom used to say, hide and watch. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right. So where are you right now? You're, you're, uh, are you in, Ohio? 
No, I'm in St. Louis. In St. Louis. Okay. And you are actually leading or part of a leadership, a leadership team uh, in your community where you live. Is that correct? So I, so I moved to St. Louis to work at a pulpit in a Orthodox congregation. Okay. Um, but then I transitioned after a couple of years and now I run an organization called the Jewish Community Relations Council, mm. um, which is responsible for, uh, and there's GCRCs all across the country. Um, although we, we each focus kind of on our local region. So um, we're responsible for, building bridges between the Jewish community and other faith, ethnic, civic, and political groups and and individuals, and then advocating on behalf of the Jewish community and on behalf of the region at large. So we get to kind of help set the tone of uh, what it is that the Jewish community cares about and leads on and uh, advocates for. Um, But I'm also still deeply involved with my congregation and I still get to teach classes and, uh, and, and do sermons and some pastoral work. Awesome. Well, this is a great segue because I want to talk to you specifically, you know, I, I through my work in interfaith um, came to know lots of folks in the Jewish community and in, in the U S and, one of the things that is so interesting for me to watch uh, is sort of the ongoing internal conversations around, uh, you know, certain issues, certain ideas that I think a lot of people avoid having outside of religious community because they can silo off much more easily, right? So you have people who are politically conservative who rarely want to meet or hang out with liberals and vice versa. But when you are Jewish and and Jewishness is, is a peoplehood, you're you're together. <laughs> and yet within that kind of or under that umbrella, right? I mean, yes, there are different communities and you know people do kind of go their you know, into their own corners. But when it comes down to it, you know, if something happens, uh, the Jewish community is going to have to stand together. That's just the way it's always been. And it's going to have to be that way because of, you know, being a, such a minority, globally a minority. And so, but at the same time, within there are all these like conflicts around politics, around social issues and things like that. And I find that fascinating because so many of the people I talk to right now in this country are like, you know, it's my way or the highway, you know, we, you know, it's almost like, well, you know, like, let's get a divorce, let's divorce the liberals, or let's divorce the conservatives, because, you know, we just can't get along. And, uh, and when it comes down to it, nobody's going anywhere. (laughs) Right? Like we are here for the duration. Uh, Unless you're really like proposing, you know, eliminating half of the people in this country, in that case, you need help. Although there's plenty of people who are like nodding along with you right now going, no, no, that sounds good. Yeah, I know. I know. It's, it's super disturbing also because of, you know, my relationship with Jewish, uh, Jewish community, I am pretty sensitive to that kind of, um, dehumanization talk and these ideas about just, you know, eliminating whole groups of people that, that Mm. makes me a little upset. <laughs> but I guess my question to you is how, what lessons can you take from navigating the internal differences in the Jewish community to um, to the broader American social con- context? Well, first, I, I need to take the clip of you saying all of that and play it for our Jewish community, because I don't know that they all would actually agree with everything that you just said. I mean, look, the, the broader American context is pervading the Jewish community. And so, you know, we're Americans and we're subject to the same flaws and hiccups and problems and challenges that every other American is. And right now, that's an incredibly politically divided landscape. Yeah. So we are seeing more and more uh, people who are leaving congregations and joining new congregations, not based off of religious practice, but based off of political views. Mm. You know, where do you think that you're going to hear the sermon that you're already going to agree with? Which makes it really hard for religious leadership because part of the job of religious leadership should always be to make people a bit uncomfortable and challenge us because none of us are doing the best that we can. You know, we're all, we're all works in progress and we all need to be 
challenged. And so that is really hard. You know, we're also, it, it, like, I shouldn't laugh about it, but like our community right now is having debates even around things like anti-Semitism, you know, things yeah. that used to completely unite us where you'd say, okay, you know, but if somebody, uh, we're going to disagree, but if somebody attacks us, we're, we're all in it together. And now suddenly something happens and the community is debating whether or not it was really anti-Semitism. Um, wow. We just had, just last week, I was actually really upset about, uh, you, as you might know, all across the country, there's all these debates that are happening around uh, things like mask mandates, vaccination requirements, mm-hmm. um, and people are very um, flippantly using Holocaust references. Uh, they're showing up at, at city council meetings wearing yellow stars. They're, you know, comparing this to the Nuremberg trials or Nuremberg. I mean, like, it's just like, like the level of um, kind of absurdity. And so I participated last week in a press conference with our county executive to say, like, we need this Holocaust imagery to just stop. It just it demeans the memory of of those who were killed. It, you know, I mean, these symbols meant something very different. And that's not what we're talking about. And, you know, and, and, and I and we don't want to be political tools in this debate around vaccine yeah. health. Yeah. And um, and then the, the the council met and they read into record like letters from three people in the Jewish community who wrote in to say, we didn't find anything offensive. And, you know, we didn't hear anything offensive. So, so like suddenly we're, we're all, so yeah, I don't know that we're really doing things as well, but you know, I think for me, like, yeah, our Jewish community is fighting, but part of the role of the work that I do is to work on behalf of the whole Jewish community. Right. And a big part of that for me is you use the word peoplehood. And I think, um, that's how I see the Jewish community. And that's a real value for me. I think that I, I believe that there's something bigger than just myself. There's something that's, that's bigger than just my opinions or my views on the Jewish community. And, and that is to be part of a people. And I, and I see it as a value to be part of a people. And I think that's part of what we've lost in America is that if it's so easy to say, you know, let's just like, let's, let's cut Florida off or I uh-huh. can't wait for California to be its own country or, you know, whatever it is, um, then, you know, you're basically saying like, I don't value those people. I don't, I don't see them as part of me. And, and that's for me, I think like being part of a Jewish people is recognizing that all of the people are somehow a part of me. Yeah. They could be a part of me that I don't always like, and they could be a part of me that can annoy me or I can disagree with. Um, but at the end of the day, I can't cut them off because it's fundamentally also a part of who I am. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, it's the, I get very frustrated with that as well. The no true Scotsman fallacy, right. Where people will just say, well, that, you know, a Muslim does something that is, awful and people are like well they're not really a muslim okay that's um they are a muslim they're they're a shitty muslim <laughs> but you can't like you don't get to go around telling people what they are and are not and i i mean all of that i mean there's lots of conversation around that but the the point being difference exists in you know in reality it exists within community exists within within families and this idea that we're becoming so intolerant of differences right and yeah they are these are big things there are big differences there are fundamental differences and the fact that we are not i guess because it's so easy for us to now avoid it we become just completely intolerant of it, right? You don't have a, you don't have the choice anymore to to deal with it. We also don't know how to fight properly. This was one thing I really, uh, you know, when I when I became familiar with Muslims and Jews, this is something I see in common there. As you know, I grew up in the Christian community, and um, Christians like they have this ideal of like harmony. Right. Like a, a healthy community is a harmonious community. Right? <laughs> and uh, when I when I got to know Muslims and, and Jews, I would like go into community and people would be really there'd be a lot of contention, a lot of arguing. Right. Um, and oh, my God, Jews have this down to a science like they argue. Oh, yeah. Right. Like that's part of the, the faith is to argue about the Torah. Right. So <laughs> I just I feel like this whole idea that 
that you don't have to agree to be in community, right? That that actually a healthy community is not one which is harmonious because that's not reality, right? If you see a harmonious community, it's generally because some a lot of people are, you know, either being forced to shut up or not encouraged to come forward with the things that are making them uncomfortable because they disagree right. with. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I'm just, I'm reflecting, um, well, I'll do two stories, but one is I, I just, I always think back to a teacher I had years ago, someone who at one point she was talking about it and it was in the context of, you know, people talking about the Muslim community and, and terror and, you know, things like the, right. Like all those stereotypes that, yeah. you know, that, that fun time in the early two thousands. <laughs> um, but, but she said, you know, and I don't remember if we were reflect reacting to a person or if there might've been like a film we watched, but I think somebody had said, right. Like that's not a real Muslim. And she just, she was a, she was a, this, this very lovely Christian woman, you know, very soft-spoken. And she just said, it's so, it's too easy. Like it's too easy to just carve out the people we disagree with and say they're not part of us. Right. Because then you don't have to actually grapple with the fact that like these ideologies do exist in our community, right? Like it's really easy for me to say, right? Like, oh, you know, a Judaism that doesn't embrace my values is not a real Judaism, but like those people still are Jewish, right? And so all I'm doing is just, I'm, I'm giving myself the easy out of not having to actually have this conversation, right? Like it turns out that there's Jews who are racist. Like there are Jews who are misogynist. There are Jews who cheat on their businesses. There are Jews who cheat on their spouses, right? Like all those things, right? There's Jews who don't believe in God, right? Whatever it is, like, like we all exist. And if I just cut those out to say that that makes you not Jewish, then I don't have to actually deal with the fact that turns out we're all really messy. Mm-hmm. Um, we're really messy as a community. But the other story I wanted to share, because um, I, I always really get a kick out of remembering it. At one point a few years ago, we had done a retreat with some rabbis and imams and uh, evangelical pastors. I was like a two-day retreat. And so as part of it, that we had to do... Um, like we each pick somebody from the community to sort of do like a little sermon, like just to kind of model, you know, how we teach or how we yeah. live our faith, whatever it was. And so I, I got picked from our group and I, I do this text study, whatever it was. And a couple of the imams came over to me afterwards and they said, we're really confused. And I said, well, that's good. You know, we like, we like that. We like, we like people to be confused. Like, okay. Tell me, tell me more. And they said, they said, do you believe in God? And I said, yeah, of course I believe in God. And they said, but you argue with God. And I was like, yeah, you can't argue with something you don't believe in. And they were like, well, if you believe in God, then you have to like submit to whatever uh-huh. God says. And I was like, oh, no, we didn't sign up for that. Like, <laughs> no. You know, yeah. and it was like, because like, right, they were like, so you don't believe in God. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like, I believe in God. And I believe I get to tell God when God's being a jerk. Yeah. Yeah. Because sometimes God kind of feels like a jerk some days. Yeah. 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 So we, I, I think this, we had the same insight. Uh, and I remember having this conversation uh, w- over at Hartman. I Maybe it was with Yehuda. And we had that same conversation where he was like, you know, a lot of, uh, in their encounters with Muslims, they are often scandalized by the way that Jews approach God and approach uh, their te- their holy texts, right? And uh, at the same time, uh, I found it so refreshing, right? I found it so refreshing, especially the tradition of Havruta, which I think is just, you know, you don't see that a lot in the Muslim community because text, especially the Quran, is elevated to this almost uh, infallible, it is considered infallible, right? And there's not, um, you're not encouraged to turn it over. Uh, it's it's almost like it's this fragile thing that needs to be sitting on a shelf. Whereas Jews will take the Torah and they'll just turn it upside down and inside out in every which way because to them it's non-destructible and they can do it. <laughs> it's non-destructible, but I would also say that to a certain extent, like in my tradition, in the Orthodox tradition, we would also say that Torah is infallible, like in mm-hmm. that it is... It, it is full of truth in that, um, right? But to that end, though, like, if it is full of divine wisdom, then, like, God doesn't just speak, like, in, you know, simple one-syllable terms, right? Like, then there's, like, we need to, like, unpack it. Like, okay, if this is really God's word, like, we want to get every last 
drop out of it. We're going to like ring it, you know, we're going to squeeze it. We're going to twist it. Like we're going to, you know, do what we need to do, but, but not right. I mean, it is, but it's, it's funny because for us, it's like almost more respectful to it, right? Like if this is really God's word, then you think you could understand it just by sitting there and reading it. Like, Uh no, you have to study it with somebody else because they're going to give an insight that you were going to miss and you don't want to miss that insight. And like, like, yeah, it's not because we take it lightly. Like for me, that's the most serious way you can, you can read a text. Yeah. You know, I think that that is actually something that is part of Islamic tradition. It's just that it wasn't fostered and encouraged because there's some, I I remember, uh, and I'm going to butcher it, but there's a, a saying about how every, every, uh, verse of the Quran has like some number of meanings to it. Right. Which is that whole idea that you, yeah, you can read it and you're going to get this top layer and then you're going to read it again and you're going to get another layer. And every time you read it, you're going to get something different out of it. But that doesn't uh, show itself in the way that uh, I've seen community gather around and, you know, and uh, explore the text. I, it, it's much more of a reverence. Uh, it's just just the reading of it is considered an act of worship out loud. And um, and any kind of exposition is just always deferred to some uh, scholarly figure. So uh, I, I found that's why I, I think that's why I was so enchanted by Havruta. It was just so amazing to be able to take text and have no wrong answer. Just be like, okay, you can just, what does this mean to you, right? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's one of my favorite things that, you know, I I really, I want to say, part of me wants to say like, I understand these other views, but I actually really don't. I really don't. Like, it's like, you know, I, I, because that for me, I mean, and that's part of my own journey also was like, I wanted to be engaging with the text. I didn't want to be, you know, sitting on the sidelines and waiting for someone to tell me what it said. I wanted to be able to study it. And to do that, I needed to be able to have the text skills and the background and all of those. But, but yes, I mean, but because we really do believe that every person gets access to it and that, and that, and, and that's part of what it is for it to be written by God and to be divine and to be eternally true is that it's also going to be true today in 2021 as it was in the 13th century or as it was in the 5th century yep. but but it's going to have right and so in that it that's so it's not speaking on a so yeah there's a superficial truth also but it can't exclusively be superficial or else there's a reason why certain texts were like good texts in you know a few hundred years ago and we don't ever read them again because yeah. they're they're outdated, you know, and then there's those things that we keep going back to because there's some deeper truth in them that somehow transcends just the words. So if we're still reading this text and it's been thousands and thousands of years, then there's got to be something deeper that we got to keep digging for. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. That's um, super interesting. And and I hadn't put the together, but I'm glad you called it out. Just this idea that uh, in order for you to fully engage with the text in a rigorous way you needed that level of education and access and that that should be something that everyone has access to regardless of of gender or whatever right economics whatever so i think that that's a i mean that's a pretty radical (laughs) pretty radical idea i know it's not shared by everybody uh and it's also i mean in in every tradition but i think i completely agree with it um Okay, I want to talk to you a little bit about your activism, because you are, yes, you are a religious leader, but you're also an activist. And on some issues that I feel like aren't easy, I mean, good Lord, Rory, you don't ever take the easy road. (laughs) (laughs) You're just like, what is the most difficult thing that I can do? And I'm going to do it. I know you've been incredibly outspoken around trans rights and supporting uh, trans children. Again, it's not an easy thing, I think, for conservative people, for orthodox people, or for people who are just not familiar with the issue to to accept. And yet you've taken this on as sort of a thing, a, 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 something that you're clearly very passionate about. What is it that draws you to that issue? 
I, I have some I have some personal connection to it with people that I'm deeply connected with and through that have become more deeply connected with people. And you know, I think like the more you just you just meet people and hear their stories, yeah. the more it, it's just impossible for me not to be heartbroken at the way in particular that trans youth are suffering. I mean, trans individuals as a whole have been one of the most marginalized communities, um, have faced such horrific violence that has gone largely unreported and, and untold, um, you know, legalized discrimination. Um, and then trans youth in particular, who who now are like growing up in this world, although I will also say, I think are, are living in this very different world because of the activism of those who have come before, mm-hmm. um, and yet are, are sort of like living in this world that by and large has I shouldn't say by and large, you know, it's, it's a case by case basis, but in many situations, you know, have really embraced them, but then are also facing legislation at the state level or the federal level that's trying to tell them that who they are is criminal. And so, you know, I, I do want to also just say, and I want to talk more about all of it, but it's interesting for me because I feel like in many ways we have relinquished this space of religious voice to what I'll say are, are these incredibly conservative voices. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I don't think that that's accurate. Like to me, you know, I don't like everything I do is deeply out of my sense of faith and deeply out of what I religiously believe that my text and God's word and history all call me to do. Mm-hmm. And so I just really, I, I resent, not resenting you, right. But I resent this idea that we have in the world that sort of like religion has been, relinquished to this one side and I'm really invested in like reclaiming that right because I think I think if our religion really says that we have to help the most vulnerable then here are some of the most vulnerable people that we have in our population right now where you know not only are they facing discrimination but they're facing discrimination that's being codified into law as we speak right like that people are you know we're not even talking about needing new laws to protect them we're talking about people creating laws specifically to write them out of protections that have existed before or just out of protections that you get out of being like a regular human i mean the legislation that we were lobbying against that's passed in a number of states right now um that i think is like particularly heinous makes it criminal for doctors to give gender affirming health care to children mm-hmm. i mean these are children who um have have vocalized that they are that they are not the gender of what the doctor has assigned them at birth and are being affirmed, have support of their families, have support of physicians, have support of therapists, and then want to, in some cases, take puberty blockers to stop hormones, to prevent them from hitting puberty so that they then don't have to do some of the intensive surgeries that would come, right? So for somebody who was assigned female at birth to not develop breast tissue that would then require surgery to Mm -hmm. remove, right? So we're talking about not cutting up somebody's body to say, and I understand some of the hesitation to say, you know, that's a really intense decision for someone to make at the age of 10 or 11 or 12. But we're saying, okay, so that's why they take puberty blockers to delay puberty so that then they can make this decision at you know, 16 or 17 or, or whatever age it is. And again, with years of consultation with qualified medical professionals. And yet then we have these state legislatures who want to step in and criminalize it. And when I say criminalize, I mean, at one point, the bill here in Missouri said that not only would it be illegal to do that, but a doctor who would give such treatment would be at risk of losing their license. And a parent who supported such treatment would be in violation of child abuse laws and could lose their children. Wow. That's intense. So, you know, for me, like, I just don't see how any of us could be silent about that. And and that's not and that's not in any way I don't feel like there's any contradiction of of my identities like if anything I feel like it is the most lived out version of what I understand religion to be calling us to do. Yeah. Why do you think people automatically cuz this is true in Muslim community too. Why do you think people automatically think that if you are uh, orthodox that you are going to be politically conservative? Because I know that, that, I mean, those are just not clean lines. 
right? And yet I, you hear over and over and over again from people who are, who are both not <laughs> politically conservative and not orthodox. Yeah, I look, I mean, the numbers bear it out. So I want to say that that's not always the case. But the truth is, is that the Orthodox community does tend to be a lot more politically conservative in the uh-huh. Jewish community than, than others do. So I can't deny all of that. But I don't think that it has to be a, a, a clear ratio from one to the other. I think there's real room in terms of how we engage and interpret text. People who defy standards feel like they have to leave communities. Sometimes communities push them out and sometimes they choose to leave. And I think that's a lot of the reason why as individuals realize that they're gay or they're trans or they, or they're feminist or whatever it is, right. They choose to go into other communities that they see as far more embracing of those identities and, and that for me was one of the reasons, I mean, I, I don't want to compare my struggle in any way to the struggle that's faced by the LGBTQ community, because it's not. Right. Um, but for me, that was one of the reasons why I felt like it was really important that I didn't just become a reform rabbi or a conservative rabbi, partially because I'm not, I'm, I'm orthodox, I'm not conservative or reform. Um, but I felt like because to leave would be to say that the community didn't have a place for me. And I don't mm-hmm. think that's true. I don't think that's true, but I think I have to demand my spot in it. And I think that's that's for all of us to demand our spots within it. And I think there's a lot of people who just feel like if you want to go to, to talk about advocating for vulnerable populations outside of the Jewish community, then you're going to have more luck in that in the conservative or reform communities than you are in the Orthodox. But if, yeah. if you leave and you go there, then all the people, right, if all the people who think that keep leaving, then right, we, we end up with that self-selecting group that we were describing before. Yeah. And, and I think that's exactly what we don't want. So that's, that's part of the reason why I think it's really important that people, that we all claim our spaces. Right. Nobody, nobody gets to tell us who we are and who we're not or what we're supposed to be or what we're not. And I believe that's true for all of us in faith communities. I believe it's true for those people with different gender identities. I believe it's true of politics. Right. Like nobody gets to tell us who we are. We get to carve out our own space. But sometimes we have to fight for that space. Yeah, I have to say I struggle mightily with this because I feel like often it's, uh, well, it takes, it does take a lot. I was talking to my friend uh, who's a a reform rabbi last week, and we were having the same conversation about how you affect change within community and how, you know, it, it requires that you have that kind of fortitude and that you are willing to kind of stand your ground. And at the same time, it's also terribly unfair to place the that kind of burden on what is almost always going to be a minority <laughs> who is you know always being pushed to the margins to to be the ones to organize and to push for that kind of change and um which is not to say that it's not right i mean that's how it has to happen but i also don't for one second feel like people who who need a break who are who have experienced trauma and are just not able to deal with it or who who've been repeatedly hurt i i don't feel like they i don't blame them for going elsewhere i just don't so it it, it's really you know you have to be in a position of some privilege within community to to be able to push back and say like what are you gonna do (laughs) like i'm not going anywhere like go ahead come at me right and so um the fact that there are people willing to do that is, to me, um, incredibly heroic. And I don't think that that particular subset gets a lot of attention or a lot of credit, but I see it and I appreciate it and I value it. Uh, and I see you as one of those people. Well, I, and I appreciate you naming it, though, because that is really true. I don't in any way want to indicate that it's that it's necessarily those people's jobs. Um, right. I, so. We all have a different role to play in whatever it is, but everyone's first priority is self-preservation. Yeah. And I feel like now more than ever. And yeah. so, but that's also for me, part of it is, it's the privilege that I have. I get to step into this space as someone who is not trans, who has a pulpit, who 
is a religious leader who has a platform to amplify these messages, to speak out, and to also try to reclaim some of those faith voices within it. And, um, and I think that's something that all of us need to think about. What do we have platforms to do or, or what are we able to do? Because there's some fights we can't take on, whether because we don't have the reach or because it's just too painful for us. And right. so that's, I, I appreciate you, you really lifting that up because that is not, people will sometimes say that, right? They'll say like, you have to stay and fight. Like you can't tell somebody else they have to stay and fight. Like yeah. People, yeah. people go where they need to go. Yep. 100%. And uh, it's just, it's so, I admire it so much. And you are a, you are a wise, wise woman. You are definitely somebody that I consider a leader, somebody that I look to for, um, for guidance, even though I'm not even part of your, you know, religious tradition. I think in general, the way you conduct yourself as a leader, as a woman, as a, as a Jewish woman is exemplary. And I'm, I'm grateful to know you. Well, the feeling is quite mutual. All right. Well, this has gone by way too fast. And so I feel that we should do it again sometime. I would love that. Excellent. Excellent. We didn't even talk about like kids or whatever, like food, any other stuff. We just talked about freaking religion. You have a kid that left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. He Well, he is not that far away. He, it's his school is like two hours away but it still feels like forever that's not in your house anymore i know <laughs> i know it's uh it's weird it feels weird um but he's happy he's doing good okay um, yeah yeah how are how are yours they're good they're good they're like becoming full-grown people they have opinions of their own what? i don't know who gave them permission for that <laughs> Oh gosh, where where could they have possibly learned that, Rory? I don't know. <laughs> I cannot possibly fathom. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, uh, please come again and thank you for your time. I know how busy you are, and uh I will I will tag you as soon as we publish this podcast. Love it. So good to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And don't come back until you've redeemed yourselves.